0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.
2: Today's program is brought to you by Korin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com.
1: Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here on Beer Sessions Radio. It's been our 14th year... And we've had some really great episodes. I'm really a big fan of heritageradionetwork.org. Check us out, support us, become a member. So, uh, we're, we're going to go around the room and introduce our guests. We'll, the point of departure for this episode is Courtney Eisman's excellent article in uh, Good Beer Hunting about some of the OG uh, beer bars in New York City. And um, we are all of us were fortunate enough to be in it or know some of the people in that article. Um, and it really captures a special time. So let's go around the room, have everyone uh, just say their name and, and their affiliation so that our listeners can uh, hear your voice. We'll start with Chris.
3: Hi, I'm uh, Chris O'Leary. I'm the editor of uh, Brew York, a longtime New York City beer blog and newsletter.
1: Great. Jen? Uh,
4: I'm Jen Meslenka. I am the GM and partner
5: in the Spring Lounge in downtown Manhattan. VR? Uh, I'm B.R. Rolia, uh formerly of Shelton Brothers Importers and currently uh beer consulting. And I was also uh, uh one of the members of the selection committee for the Good Beer Seal Bars. For many years, you're a core person. And Courtney?
6: I'm a freelance beer writer. Um I write for places like craft beer and brewing, good beer hunting, vine pear, etc. And also I write a craft beer newsletter called Hugging the Bar.
1: Well Courtney I, I will say I don't think it, whenever it was earlier this year sometime last year you reached out and and you were writing an article about uh you know the, some of the beer bars in New York City maybe circa two thousand eight nine and and I just love that you reached out because for many of us um, many of the good Brazil bars that was an important time in, in our careers and in our lives and I just want to thank you for um for choosing that topic. How did that story come about? I know you have to pitch to editors, but um, you know, everyone's been talking about breweries almost exclusively the last few years. It's it's nice to hear about those dedicated beer bars too.
6: Yeah. Um, I mean, Good Beer Hunting is a great platform for sort of to be able to dive into bigger, like sort of more of these like sweeping stories, looking at pockets of beer history. Uh, And I obviously am biased and just so proud of the New York City beer scene. That's the only beer scene I've ever known as a local. And I think what's always fascinated me about the scene here is that, you know, you think of the beer scenes in other, you know, relatively smaller cities in other ways, but you think of somewhere like Denver, or one of the two Portlands and, you know, the beer scene there, I think just sprung out of tap rooms, but in New York, it always struck me that our tap rooms came so much later and that for so many for so many people in the community, we all our journey started in beer bars and the beer bars of New York are incredible and they're all different. But all very tightly wound into the community and those were all such special places to me um so you know working with my the amazing editor uh who was there at the time claire bullen at good beer hunting just started sort of weaving into this new york city beer scene history through these beer bars and how vital these beer bars are that don't you know like you're saying they don't as often get the spotlight as tap rooms do now um but yeah then then the biggest challenge became what beer bars are we actually going to highlight because the more i started writing this it was like the more you know oh my god this place and this place so it was it was a beast of a story that was like so filled with nostalgia and just how how special all of these bars are or were
1: and how did you pick the the bars that were in it because some people didn't make make the article, and they they were upset.
5: Yeah, I won't say who.
6: <laughs> well, I think I only I could only actually break down about ten. I think is what I wrote the story a, a bit a bit ago now, um, but and then tried to sort of weave in mentions of of as many others as I could. Really, what it just came down to is that you know I would have been there for, like, it would have been a book if I could have just included every single bar that I went to, every single bar that had an impact. You know, there were some uh, places like Beer Table that didn't, you know, just because of where I was in the city at the time, like, I hadn't made it onto my radar. So it's kind of, it was kind of, you know, there's a bit of a of a personal essay angle to the story. So it was places that were instrumental in my own journey. Um, but then also kind of, you know extending the narrative a bit about New York City's beer scene it was also places that just played maybe a unique role um so we were trying not to really have much overlap trying to highlight uh different people like there's so many factors involved and the story got cut a million times like i promise you almost every bar was in there at some point and it just it's not possible to put it up on a media outlet at that length
1: yeah but it's a, it's a really good article and thanks for focusing on the New York city beer bars. Hey, so the the great quote that'll probably help us off. It says, if you were in New York and wanted to find out what existed beyond macro brands before 2014, you went to beer bars. So let's um, get Chris, Chris and Jen and BR involved in this. Um, Back then let's talk about beer bars. And and I know a lot of what you wrote about Courtney was like 2008, nine as well. Um, Let's go with Jen, because Jen, you, you worked at Spring Lounge. Um, you've been in the industry a long time. Tell us your story, how, how you got started working, and you know, the, what, what the vibe was like back then. So I
4: came from a very non-beer background. Uh, I was bartending in martini bars and wine bars and jazz bars and stuff like that. And then I started working for the Spring Lounge and the Blind Tiger at the same time. Uh, And they were two very different vibes. Like the Spring Lounge had craft beer, but it was not the main focus. Uh, The vibe there was still very much more of a like Schaefer and shot of tequila type bar. Um, But the Blind Tiger, that was the first time I'd ever been exposed to so much American craft beer at one time. Uh, Most of my knowledge was with Belgian craft beer. Um, and so it was interesting to me to see the difference at the same time of these, even though the bars were within the same family of ownership, the two very different cultures. And then, you know, I was able to bring the the knowledge that I had from the very short stint that I had, you know, working at the Blind Tiger over to the spring lounge. And once I started managing, you know, at that point, craft beer had started becoming a little bit more of a revolution in New York City. That's when, you know, like Lagunitas was everywhere and Sierra Nevada was everywhere and Smutty Nose was everywhere. And um, it, it became more than just seeing, you know, the, the the five or six that everybody saw, you know, in the say pre 2000, you know, five era, which was basically Brooklyn Sierra anchor. That's kind of where I went.
1: Oh yeah. No, that's great. And Chris, for you, tell us about the the Brew Brew York, New York. Um, I know you've been to over 3000 breweries in your, in your travels, but I know that you also used to focus a lot more on the beer bars.
3: Yeah. I'm, you know, I think about, how brew york itself has evolved over time and it really was just to keep tabs on all of the beer bars in new york city because that was the only beer related content there really was it was what kind of beer events are going on what new and interesting beer bars are opening um, what breweries are launching and having their launch events <coughs> excuse me at beer bars so that naturally changed over time you know we've seen in the past 10 years or so an explosion in the number of breweries and brewery tap rooms here but really new york city was a beer bar town and it was a beer bar town for far longer than most of these other places that that Courtney mentioned like you know denver and portland where my friends who were new yorkers would ask me hey I'm going to Denver. What beer bars should I go to? And I would have to say, well, there aren't a lot of beer bars in Denver. Well, that's weird. This It's a beer bar town. And it's like, no, it's a beer town. And I'm like, but it's not a beer bar town. It's a brewery town. And that was, um, you know, I'd, I'd tell them to go to a handful of beer bars, but I'd tell them mostly to go to brewery tap rooms. Um, but meanwhile here that beer bar culture was really how we came to experience craft beer in in new york and um i i kind of watched as these new places opened and tried to find new angles in a way that now breweries open and try to find new angles because they can't just be like every other place and so you had places um that had kind of been old school beer bars that stood the test of time a lot of places that opened in that first wave of craft beer in the 90s uh and then that new wave of craft beer bars that was really going after the, the new modern brewery set where people were chasing after West Coast IPAs, which we didn't call West Coast IPAs at the time. We just called them American IPAs that happened to be from the West Coast. Um, so the the evolution of of that experience eventually evolved into what is now a very robust scene as far as uh, breweries go here, but um, you know, there are certain beer bars here that have really stood the test of time and have learned to um, modernize and um, find ways to keep everyone happy as well. And, and create a sense of place. Um, <clears throat> there are there a whole lot of beer bars. I won't call them out, but like there, there's a certain like core of beer bars that opened in that 2008 to 2013 wave that just felt like they were there to just serve craft beer they didn't know anything about it they didn't educate their customers about it they didn't educate their staff about it and they were just there to serve craft beer because it was cool Uh, the ones that stood out in that era were the ones that actually took the care and time to curate a great experience and continue to exist today
1: well, Chris, that's a great intro. And BR for you, I mean, <clears throat> way back when you for me you were my I don't know, I want to say litmus test. You definitely uh you you were someone that I respected and I still do a lot your 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 judgment about establishments and, and beers and everything.
5: Thanks. Um yeah, well I mean I when I first came into I guess, you know, the, the beer scene in New York, it was um you know, I was, I was into craft beer. I had always enjoyed beer. I went to high school in Belgium, so sort of had an early start to my beer education. Um, and at the time when I came back um, to the U S for, for college, you know, there, there wasn't a, the craft beer scene at all. I mean, you were lucky if you got like stale, you know, British imports or something. Um, so really was excited when these beer bars started opening up with flavorful beers, domestic beers as well as interesting imports. Um, but then once I started working with Shelton brothers, it was also interesting, you know, having come from a background of just it being a personal interest and knowing what I liked in a beer bar to then be on the other side where I was also uh, helping to sell the beers to places. And like Chris was saying, there was a wave where these bars opened and you knew that someone with money was like, Oh yeah, you know, uh, that's what all the, the cool kids are drinking these days. So let's open up a craft beer bar but the lines weren't clean. Yeah. No one knew anything about the beer. And it was also very challenging even to try to sell them beer and explain the difference between, you know, what I was trying to sell them compared to like a macro import, for example, that maybe seemed to the buyer as something that was very cool because it was hyped up. But in reality, it was just, you know, a massive, massively large brewery that that Amer- if it were in America, they wouldn't be serving at all because it was just too big. Yeah. Well, Courtney, um,
1: I wanted to just get everyone talking because um, if this story is really about you and that that article. Um, do you want to ask any questions at this point, or do you want me to ask you another question?
6: Um, yeah. Um, whatever questions, wherever you want the conversation to go. I'm down to chat about anything here.
1: Well, first thing I wanted to ask you was. You know, when you profiled some of the the beer bars, I mean, Blind Tiger and Dave Broderick st- stood out and a little of the history of, of, of Burke Castle going way back to uh, Jerry Cousy in the 1990s. But um, I, I really like what you wrote about Ray Dieter at, at, at DBA. And um, was that from personal experience? Did you get to know Ray?
6: I did not, unfortunately. So that was, you know, from people like you and, and, you know, people that I interviewed and and I spoke to Chris, I spoke to BR for this story. I talked to a lot of people. Um, So that was honestly the best part of writing the story. Um, This story felt like the least work I've ever done, by the way, because it was just really great conversations with people reminiscing about spots and about, you know, amazing people like Ray, who were just, forces on the beer scene you know again I unfortunately never got to meet him in person but just feel like I still always felt his presence you know uh at that bar but also just in the in the greater scene I know how you know how how much of an influence he had over how this city's sort of beer community shaped up
1: yeah I mean I, I I like that you mentioned Ray because I do feel one thing about that time and with the beer bars that there really were individuals that that were driving it, like Joe Carroll at Spite and Dival, and and Dave Broderick at Blind Tiger. You know, I I feel like they have made choices about you know focusing on beer. They could have focused on other things as well. Um, but Ray, Ray was really special to us. Um, Chris, you want to talk? Let's let's go around and talk more about the importance of you know maybe that individual or other individuals in, in those beer bars. Because I, I I don't think I'm wrong. I think that it was a lot of individual driven passion.
3: Yeah. Oh no, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you think about, um, if you think about the origins of this show for crying out loud, (laughs) you know, Ray had a, Ray had a a big part in it as well. Um, You know, he, he was a very um, passionate person about beer and really spoke very smartly about it in a way that, um, you know, was, was unmatched. You know, it is a personality driven thing, especially when you're starting out and opening a bar. I think about, you know, some of the people that, um, you know, I became close with in the New York city beer scene who were running bars, um, at that time, or just bartenders themselves. Um, and, they are still friends of mine to this day and it was just because they were serving me beer and they saw in me as a customer the same passion for beer that they had and we just clicked. Um, so yeah, I I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, there's too many people to call out individually, but, um, but I really think that, um, that it, it is, It's personality-driven, especially when you have a small bar to start, you know? Um, I think about people who are bartenders at places like the Pony Bar who have gone to open their own breweries, or not even bartenders, but just barbacks at the Pony Bar, uh, talking about uh, Joey Pepper. But, um, (laughs) you know, people who have really... Um, who really just had a passion for beer, who wanted to get their foot in the door, um, started working behind the bar at these places. Yeah. Jen, you got some good stories from Spring Lounge?
4: Um, well, there's always good stories from Spring Lounge. But, uh, you know, I was actually to uh, the point that B.R. Uh, and Chris were making about the, it being the personalities. You know, uh, there was a big trend uh, like Chris pointed out with, of, you know, people, just people with money opening up these fancy beer bars. And I remember distinctly there being a moment in time where the the thing was, how many lines could you possibly have <laughs> in your beer bar that you were opening up? It was like 24 wasn't enough. 40 wasn't enough. You had these places opening up with like 60, 80, a hundred lines and all I kept thinking, you know, I'm coming from, you know, my little spring lounge with 12, <laughs> 12 draft lines that I'm constantly battling to figure out how to rotate, you know, my seasonals and my specialties and my sours and my IPAs and whatever. And, um, you know, but all I'm thinking when I look, I walk into a place that has 100 lines and I'm like, okay, which ones are the freshest that I think move the most because I know for a fact that as much as I love an ESB, that ESB probably has been sitting on that line for a month because no one is ordering it when there's a hundred beers to
1: choose from, you know? If there were a hundred beers and one of them was Bud Light, And <laughs> <Right. laughs> you know that's what everyone's drinking, so.
4: Right, so it's, you know, but... You know, back to like it being the personalities, that's really what drew me into the industry. You know, just last night, I had a bunch of old beer reps who I hadn't seen in a long time. And actually, I saw a bunch of old beer reps at uh, Union Beer had their trade tasting last week. And I saw people I haven't seen in years who we all came up in the industry together, you know, Anthony from Swift. And I saw Dan from Pony Bar and, you know, people who they were bartenders when I started bartending, you know, and like Chris said, then they went on to open their own places and have their own prominence in the beer industry. Um, And it's, it's nice to see that the people that you like who care, they care about beer, but they also care about the industry and they care about the people in the industry and they care about um, the community itself being successful. And that's, what's always drawn me to these kinds of people, you know, people like Kirk from fourth Avenue pub and Bobby from the gate who was in Courtney's article. And, you know, I have a special affinity for those two gentlemen who I think run, you know, some of the finest, uh, beer bars, but they're they're cozy beer bars. They're not fancy. They're not trying to be pretentious. They're not elitist about it. They don't judge you if you would rather have a Manhattan than a beer on that particular day. But um, you know, those guys knew knew and continue to know far more than I do about all the nuances of craft beer and the latest breweries to open and the latest beer styles um, and yet they still make it very accessible and warm and welcoming for everybody and for me that was always one of the most important aspects of craft beer because at the same time that there was the trend of you know bars opening hundreds of lines there was also the trend of you know craft beer becoming a little elitist and there's there in that it was the danger of well you're going to alienate your average person by looking at them sideways if they don't know, you know, a certain hop variety or, you know, whatever. So um, making it accessible and not scary for people was always a big priority for me, which is why when I did start doing beer events at the spring lounge, I tried to make it fun. You know, our kegs and eggs was always, you know, a big hit because it got our morning drinkers, which typically are your, (laughs) Your Budweiser, your Bud Light, your shot of whiskey guys to check out, you know, a local brewery or an IPA or a brown ale or something, something different and pair it with some food and make it fun. Jen,
1: Jen, sorry, Jen, what time does Spring Lounge open?
4: Spring Lounge opens at eight AM every day, except for Sunday, because Sunday is apparently still the
1: Lord's Day in 2023. (laughs) (laughs) I love that eight AM. That that that's I'm smiling. Courtney, did you know that the Spring Lounge opened at 8 a.m.?
6: I did know that. I love that fact. I have never been there that early, uh, but I I do appreciate it.
4: Uh, You should definitely check it out. We're actually going to be doing – we haven't done any kegs and eggs events since uh, the pandemic, but I think we'll – we might do one before, but I know we're definitely going to be doing one um, come March – the Blind Tiger and the Spring Lounge actually share the exact same anniversary, just one year apart. So uh, we're wow. doing a collaboration beer together with KCBC, and we'll do a big kegs and eggs event for that.
1: Wow. So you should come check it out. Hey, uh, BR, just um, <clears throat> for you, Jen mentioned the importance of the beer reps. I mean, you were you a great beer rep. What, what, what's the relationship of, of, you know, or was with these, these beer bars and, and reps like yourself?
5: Um, well, I mean, I wasn't sort of strictly a sales rep kind of more of, I mean, you know, my role at Shelton Brothers was more brewery managing the, some of my breweries, but I also, because I was based in New York, I kind of, by default became a sales rep, but, um, so it was more liaison with our distributor sales reps, but, um, there would also be certain bars, um, you know, like Jimmy's number 43, um, and other places who were, fans of the beers that we imported where i would be more directly involved with them letting them know the bars know about new releases um but you know even even before working in the industry as as chris and and jen were saying the you know the personalities were a huge part of it and some of these relationships i had already developed prior to, to working in the industry you know you could go to these bars and the owners would be very approachable and because they were just enthusiastic about what they were doing, they had such a passion, you know, Ray would often be sitting at the end of the bar at DBA and you you know, could go ask him and say, Hey Ray, you know, what came in, what are you really excited about? And he would be happy to tell you, even if you, you know, you're just a regular customer. Um, and it, it just created a, a real sense of, of warmth and community. Um, you know, and then there were other places where, I would get a cold shoulder because it was sometimes like, oh, you're a woman. You don't know anything about beer. Here's a fruit beer (laughs) or something. So, um, you know, really learned just um, which places were comfortable to me and had a more of a friendly atmosphere that weren't elitist, but were also accepting and, you know, just a nice place to hang out also, you know, where you're comfortable. You can have whichever beer. Um, but then, you know, working in the industry, um, it was also uh, for my part, also educational because I would let people know about, oh, you might not have heard of this style, but this is a traditional style. For example, in Germany, when, you know, like Freigeist uh, doing a lot of the more uh, historical styles, for example, or here is a Belgian Saison from a tiny brewery that has three full-time workers. This is why we are importing it and why we think it's special. And it was always great just to just have these conversations with people, um, and get them involved in in the stories and the histories of the the beers that I was working with. And, w- and one thing, having been on the the
1: bar side at Jimmy's Number Forty Three, one thing I like and I still like about the specialty beer bars, that not just the hospitality, but just between even a small draft list and some bottles and 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 other other drinks, I feel like there's always kind of limitless options. Um, that that sometimes when you're at a brewery, you you only have the options of of what they're producing. Um so hey, hey, Courtney, you know, um, this article is really cool, and I don't usually talk about articles because it's like it's like you can read them um, but it is on the good beer hunting and it and it's really neat um you really did cover so many so many of us um what I like that you focus on i want to talk a little bit about the Goodbeer seal because Chris and Jen and b r have been involved in that uh, over the years, and at at one point it did mean something. But it kind of came out of nowhere. You know, before uh, 2008, um, no one had ever thought of it. And suddenly there was this New York Craft Beer Week. And a few of us, mostly like Dave Broderick and, 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 and Joe from Spide and Dival and Gary from Burt Castle and and uh, Ray, of course, we started talking about, well, we, we do beer week every day. <laughs> so that was really kind of how how it started. Um, and B.R. and Chris, you guys were, were uh, on the selection committee early on. You want to just give a little snapshot of what what the good beer still was?
5: There was a lot of, well, initially, and I don't remember how we first nominated um, bars. I think we just kind of, everyone compiled a list of craft beer bars and went through, and I I know, Jimmy, you had a a set of guidelines um, for us, which I actually have an old copy (laughs) I found um, of, you know, and you wanted there to be, you know, it wasn't just the fact that, the, the, it's a bar with good beer and also there had to be sort of I think educational component um perhaps a, you know how they fit into the community um it was always it was, it was sort of like a friendly contentiousness in a way because there were some places that people were like I love this place and other people would say yeah it's good but you know what about this so um but initially I think I mean Chris can correct me if I'm wrong I think it was it's just more you know that when it first started too there weren't as many beer bars um and so we just kind of went through a, a list and and you know just pros and cons of each and figured out which ones. I mean, we would have loved to have included everyone, you, for, but, but we I can't remember how many you want, you needed us to cut it down to. But we had to yeah, whittle it down each year.
3: Yeah, I feel like it was eight or nine, and it was always yeah. There were there were always some like surefire uh, hits, but there were always some where it was just like. Uh, well, there's this one thing that just kind of bothers me about it, or, or it was it was just like one person was like I had a bad experience there. <laughs> it's just like, but like honestly, it was it was more about who are the place where are the, which are the places that are most passionate about serving great beer, serving it in an environment that is welcoming and being smart about the beers that they're serving as well. Um, and that was you could certainly say all those things about every single bar that made that list um, and I remember a few times Jimmy you may recall this where where we bar hopped to some of the nominees when we were unsure <laughs> towards the end of the nominating process each year and uh, <laughs> things went a little later than expected. Well, at some
1: uh, point I went from <laughs> East Village and Williamsburg to to including Bronx and Staten Island, Staten and Island as yeah. well, um, so there, there, we we had a lot of fun doing it. But I think one of the keys was was it was talk about the hospitality, Courtney. The the indie operators was was an important part of it. Now that meant you could have had s- s- several beer bars or had a partner in in another place or something else. Um, but it, it it wasn't meant to be um, like a corporate thing. Or if there was a corporate restaurant group that had a number of restaurants and then opened a beer bar, like we would kind of not think it because it, 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 it was, there was almost a club quality to it as well. Like we did, we did have lunches like once a year for a while and we, we hung out and we had award ceremonies. So I, I think for most of us, like one backstory that I never really told anyone was that I was in this business a long time back, back since the early nineties and I had a restaurant and I used to only remember in New York city, the the sense of competitiveness between different establishments and, um, I never really thought of any other restaurant owner as a friend in the early days. And I think that something kicked in when I got to know Ray, um, his sense of uh, his camaraderie and um, just an openness to, to things that probably opened a lot of doors. And that's how I met Dave Broderick. And that's how I met Joe Carroll. And then literally the first year, they each recommended or all of us recommended one or two beer bars that we thought should be included and that's kind of how it got started. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a pretty neat time, but you guys also, I mean, like Jen, there was controversy when at some point, uh, some, some bars weren't included. Remember that Jen and Kirk? Oh, I, the, the I stand, the, <laughs> oh, yeah. I stand with, uh, with, with, stand with spring, with spring lounge, lounge was an yeah, icon. That, that was,
4: that was a whole movement. Yeah. Well, because after a while, you know, I understood where I've never, you know, like pretended in my mind that the spring lounge in terms of what kind of beer bar we are, what kind of bar we are, you know, we are not exclusively a craft beer bar and I've never, you know, I've never claimed to be. So I understood when there was a time where, you know, of course we're not in the same league as, DBA or the blind tiger or Jimmy's or, you know, some of these other places that really were exclusively craft beer focused and driven. Um, but then there, be, there came a time where, like we said, all of these new places started opening up. And at that point I had been, you know, relatively, you know, not prominent in the community, but, you know, I had a place there. The spring lounge had a place there. We threw really great beer, uh, beer and food pairing events and, you know, I went to all these other, beer, you know, I, I was, you know, I went to other people's beer events and we were part of it. And at the spring lounge, I would see all these other bars getting the good beer seal. And I'd be like, what? they just opened, they just opened like <laughs> six months ago. Like, what do you mean? So it, you know, so it became a running joke between me, Bobby and Kirk, that I didn't have the good beer seal. So every year when the nominees would come out and I wasn't one of them, Kirk would do his, I stand with spring lounge hashtag. Um, so that was sort of the running joke for a couple of years. Um, and then finally, when I got it, uh, me and some friends produced a video online of, um, you know, me running through the streets, waving my good beer seal, like over the Brooklyn bridge and running to fourth Avenue pub and hugging Kirk. I
1: I remember that. That It was, but
4: I, but truly I, it was it was kind of like what you said. It was, it felt like a club. And I was like, I want to be part of the club.
1: <laughs> it was cool. And, B, and B.R., we, we had some like early on there, like, for example, if you had some Shelton Brothers beers at the time in the early days, that, that set you apart from, from most other bars, didn't it?
5: Oh, definitely. I think, yeah, anything from the Shelton portfolio and also, um, you know, some of the ones from Be United, um, they were, you know, beers you just couldn't find anywhere, um, anywhere else. And, you know, it was mostly the beer, you know, that was the, the prime, you know, clientele would be at beer bars. Um, and then eventually also some, some of the higher end restaurants who wanted, um, a beer list that kind of either reflected not so much their cuisine, cause it was very hard to do like a regional cuisines or, or, you know, international cuisines, um, they just wanted to stick with the cheaper stuff. It was more the American restaurants that tended to want a better beer list. And I mean, I would even have bars say to me, oh, I went to, you know, Gramercy Tavern and I saw this beer on their list and I've never heard of it. Can you bring me a sample? For, do I want to have it in my bar. You know, it was it was sort of a symbiotic relationship in that way. Same with, you know, restaurant, uh, you know, the, the, the wine and beverage directors would say, oh, I went to, you know, DBA, or I went to Spite and Dival and I had this amazing beer. I want to get this on, you know, the, the, uh, on our beverage program. Um, so it was, but it was definitely, I mean, you know, these were the higher end imports. They're more expensive. Um, and even though they sometimes, <laughs> that's a whole other story. They shouldn't be because of, you know, distributor markups, but whatever. Um, it was, yeah, it was a sign, I think in certain places that if you, if you saw some of these beers on the list, you're like, Oh, they, must be serious about their beer program, um, you know, but not obviously not to exclude any of the, the amazing American breweries as well. You know, it was nice. It was always nice to see a mix between domestic and imports um, except for Spite and Dival when they initially just did the, the Belgian beers, which was like awesome because it was like only Belgian beers and some Germans and that was it. Um, it was, it was pretty eye opening for a lot of people I think. Oh yeah. And um,
1: oh, I was thinking about
5: uh, in that time,
1: and maybe whoever wants to join in can join in on this one. The, it seemed like suddenly and almost overnight, but it wasn't overnight, the consumer's beer IQ just went through the roof in a good way, as well as, you know, the beer selections improved. Um, and I don't know who if I'm making sense, but I'm thinking like mid, I'm thinking from like 2002 where my old bar we sold a lot of Stella and Corona, and I just started getting some IPAs on a jockey box to, um, you know, two thousand five six when we had Cantillon, Cantillon on, on on draft, and no one would touch it. Um, wh- what was that big change? It it, it happened really fast, um, Courtney. I don't know if you if you thought that through. There was some point where, beer IQ and selection just went through the roof.
6: I actually remember talking to Bobby at the gate about this, like just, you know, 1995, I think they opened. It was, uh, and you know, people coming into the bar and in those years it was like people coming in they're like what what is this and it was like this (laughs) this odyssey that the bartenders could guide people through and then within you know by the early aughts then people were coming in and they were like I'm looking for this beer style like oh you have this and I think I guess I mean It's like so many people could sort of pinpoint about the time of the shift. I'm not, you know, sure. I I think it's such a big variety of factors. It was just the proliferation of both. You know, there was that little flutter up uh, going into sort of like early to mid aughts of beer bars in New York, and I'm sure it was happening in other cities. So, I mean, it definitely was. so, And, of course, tap rooms, too, right? So, like, people are coming as tourists into New York, and they might already have a tap room, like, somewhere in their city at that point that they might be familiar and sort of know, you know, what they're looking for already. But it it was really interesting to talk to people about that, just, like, that cusp there where... These bar owners could see the difference between people just almost having to be sometimes convinced to try things or just, you know, complete blank slates to then patrons sort of being like almost guiding, you know, what what uh, you know, what they want to order, what they want to have on tap, because that's what people now are looking for.
4: Um, I do think, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll jump in for a second. I do agree with uh, her that it was probably, I feel like it was like that mid, like 2006, 2007, 2008, maybe, where um, I do think it had a lot to do with it not just being a local thing, but across the country, it was the popularity of of craft beer was growing and therefore the population as a whole was becoming more aware. I mean, I remember distinctly an Italian couple coming into the bar, into the spring lounge because I had a Lagunitas IPA neon in my window. And they were like, oh, you have, you have an IPA, you have an IPA. Like I love those and we don't get those in Italy. So I want to have an IPA. And and I think I happened to also maybe be having a, um, I think I was distinctly having a Captain Lawrence event on that day, because I then put them, I hooked them up with Keith, who used to work for Captain Lawrence, um, who spoke Italian. I was like, here, you talk to them. Um, But I think it was more of a, like a national and a global movement of people becoming more aware of different styles. and, And also the styles were becoming more interesting a little bit. It wasn't, your choices weren't only a blonde lager or a brown lager you know, or a, you know, it was, there was becoming a little bit more nuanced to, there were more hoppy IPAs and then you had your pale ales, which were a little maltier, but still hoppy. And, you know, it was things, there was more variety out there.
1: There was one thing also about the New York city beer bars that in New York city, especially back then, like unlike the West Coast. The European imports were always strong, like whether it was wine or anything else. So I know when when I opened Jimmy's number 43 in 2005, I probably had mostly Europeans, whether it was Belgian, Germans like Aventinus, Chimay on draft and, and other things. Uh, Chris, you know, you travel so much uh, from your job, which is I don't want to tell anyone what your job is, but that's how you've gotten to go to over 3000 breweries. But um, when did you start seeing the, the, the shift? And when did you actually start counting the number of breweries that you went to?
3: It was right around the time the breweries started to open in, in New York, really, um, on, a, on a large scale. It was around 2012, 2013, when uh, the first wave of, of breweries started to open here. Um, and it kind of aligned with my passion shifting and my writing shifting even from writing about bars alone to writing about bars and breweries um, and writing more about local beer and celebrating what's local whether it's you know local beer but also local beer served in a local bar um, those were you know a crucial part of what I was writing at the time as I was admittedly not as objective and more of kind of a cheerleader for beer which I know some beer writers who get passionate about and end up falling into that trap um but um yeah I I think it was around that time that I really started to keep track and um you know it's it's interesting because uh, having been to 3,000 plus breweries it's always exciting to come back to New York and just slip back into an old friend so you know like a like a, a blind tiger or a or a um um Spite and Dival, you know, places that I still kind of frequent on a pretty regular basis. Um, But also it's exciting to have traveled to some of these breweries that are now being served at these bars. So um, going... You know, talking about even just this week, uh, Great Lakes is finally launching in New York city. Um, and I think back to my visit there back in 2015 and how much I just loved the space and the history and the, um, and the beer. And I'm like, Oh, I want to have this in New York city. And finally I have it in New York city. Uh, so I've, I've really enjoyed that part of it, and and also watching breweries mature and grow to a point where they start distributing their beer in New York. I I think back to in 2017, I took my my first trip, and it may only be maybe my only trip to North Dakota, and visited a small brewery called Drecker Brewing, and uh, Drecker became. Um a cult favorite for their fruited sours and i p a s and things like that, and um, I thought they were really solid when I visited them very early on in in their you know time of operation and now. They distribute fairly regularly in New York City. This little brewery that was on the main street in Fargo, North Dakota, has has really grown and taken off. So wow. it's 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 fun to watch that aspect of the scene and how it actually has ripple effects that reverberate all the way to New York City.
1: Yeah, and then Chris, I just want to give a shout out that you know, in the early days you were one of the key chroniclers of, of the craft beer scene, the beer bar scene in New York City and uh, there actually were quite a few other people just writing beer blogs about about bars. Um, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right.
2: Today's program is brought to you by Korin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Korin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Koren's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com.
1: Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Hey, I'm Jimmy Carboni, I'm the host here. It's our 14th season um big fan of org. support us become a member a lot of good things happening here at org. so we're with Courtney Eisman I wrote a great article for good beer hunting uh which talked about some of the older OG New York City beer bars um Courtney thanks so much for uh for for when you write an article it's like it's you you have to birth it almost don't you cuz you're really stuck with it and you and you did a lot of good interviews
6: Yeah. I mean, this one, again, like this, I worked on this for longer than I have probably for any other story. Uh, So it was just like this nice, you know, I'm working on other things at the same time, but I once a day will probably during that time, I would have an interview with some bar owner of a bar that was very special to me or, you know, someone, a fellow, you know, New York city beer community member who also has great memories. And it was so fun to see, you know, which of us were probably at the same bars at the same time when not even knowing, uh, you know, over 10 years ago or who was going to bars that just weren't even on my radar because of, you know, them being in different neighborhoods. So it was, the whole process was long and involved and hard and when it came to picking bars, but it was, it was so fun.
1: You know, the, the intro on, on your, in your article, it starts with uh, against the grain and, uh, I'm going to let you just, just describe what, what Against the Grain was because not that many people knew about it.
6: Yeah, this was one of the fun ones. There, there were a couple of bars that when I was doing interviews, uh, like they a couple of them like didn't make it into this story because I couldn't really find enough people that went there a lot, like David Copperfield on the Upper East Side. Um, but Against the Grain was a... I mean, it was the size of a closet or or a New York city studio apartment more accurately. Uh, it was on sixth street between avenues B and C. Uh, and it was like the beer bar component of, uh, a wine bar. Uh, and it was just this little, it, it felt at that time, you know, I think I, I started going there around when I moved to the city after college. So like 2008, 2009, And it just felt really punk rock because the wine bar was big and, you know, had very like mood romantic lighting and like big cushy tables compared to, uh, you know, this wine, this beer bar section that was dark and cool. And you kind of packed in there and they just had a few, um, I think like pork slap ale, like things like that were on. Um, I think that that's where I first like realized what Dogfish Head was. The bartender was telling us about, you know, oh, you like this? There's a tap takeover at Rattle & Hum. So like there was like a little tiny spark of a community there. That's where I first started learning about so many other breweries um, that were coming out at that time. And then also other beer bars that, you know, that's how I was finding out to venture to Midtown. Uh, so Against the green RIP, very special uh, spot in my journey.
1: And I'll tell you, actually way back then it was on East 6th Street uh east east of a definitely east of B, and uh ray ray Dieter used to actually live across the street from it so
6: <laughs> oh wow
1: that was a that's an anecdote you don't know yeah. um yeah hey courtney i want you to ask so th- this probably a question that you didn't ask or maybe a question you asked for your interview of chris or br that you want to rehash for our listeners
6: um, I mean, there's tons, but one thing I was thinking about, just because I think this this was a fun one to talk about, nostalgia-wise. Uh, I know uh, Chris had a couple, I think, that we talked about when I interviewed him for this. But I think it's fun to hear, and this is for everyone, really, about events that some of these beer bars had that you have special special memories of. Like I think, Chris, we talk about the chili cook-off at the gate. Uh, and I have like great memories of Split thy Skull at Muggs. So if anyone has like, I mean, there were some events I feel like were like really iconic and very anticipated every year.
3: And Jen, Jen had a chili cook off too. Don't oh, forget. yeah.
6: yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and, and honestly, yeah, kegs and eggs was another was another like iconic event. So sorry, Jen. <laughs> Go ahead.
4: Oh, no, it's okay. Well, thanks for that shout out. Yeah, I was the originator of the uh, of the brewery chili cook-off event, um, because we used to do a regular chili cook-off for our customers every year, and uh, if eventually as i became friends with all the beer reps they all wanted to enter the chili cook off but they were my friends and i was like i can't i can't let you into the chili cook off like it's supposed to be like a you know for the customers like first come first serve type you know like for en- to enter so then i started thinking and i was like what if i did a chili cook off of all beer reps and then wow. and everyone got a everyone got to represent their beer on the draft line and then the winner of the chili cook-off, we didn't do it this way back originally because I, I didn't know. I was like, here you win. Uh, here's a t-shirt and a gift card or something. But now when we do it, um, the winner gets, uh, gets, you know, line placement for, you know, so the winner, say, gets a line placement for a full month you know, you get, and I try to, you know, pick a style that'll move a lot to sell a lot of kegs. So, you know, I'll put your pills in Pilsner on draft for a month or something. Jen, who
1: was, who was the most recent winner? Which brewery? Uh f- The most
4: recent, Fifth Hammer. Wow. Fifth Hammer won the last chili cook-off
3: that we I did. I had that chili. <laughs> I was there, I had that chili. It was, re- <laughs> it was good. It was really good.
4: Yeah, I mean, well, it's, I mean, but Mary that really can, I mean, I'm assuming she, she cooked the chili because she's just amazing. She could do everything.
1: Definitely, she's a superstar. Hey, um, Br, do you, do you have a? I love that question, Courtney. Do you have a brewery event that you remember?
5: Um, I think it's more important as, as to ask is do you remember them? This <laughs> <laughs> is <kind laughs> a good event. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I mean definitely the Split Thy Skull at Mugs, um, which I believe originated at a bar in Philadelphia. I can't remember, and I think um. Bill Coleman and Warren Becker would go down to this event and then convince Eddie to do a Brooklyn edition. Um, and then also their Belgium to Brooklyn, uh, which would be like, uh, I think that usually happened around November or December, which would be all Belgian style ales or Belgian ales, I believe from Belgium, maybe a few American style uh, breweries as well. But, but what was great is, so I was in the malted barley. I'm in the malted barley appreciation society homebrew club. Um, And we used to meet at Muggs and it would be awesome because the Wednesday after one of these events, Eddie would still have all of these beers up, but instead of serving them in little three ounce tasters, he just wanted to clear the lines out. So you were getting like 20 ounce pints of, of, you know, like a 12% Imperial stout. And, uh, those, those are pretty crazy. Um, but I also enjoyed, especially for me, you know, sort of the beginning, a little bit more of my beer education was, uh, the, at the old blind tiger over on Hudson, they would have occasionally have brewery events where the brewers would come. And this was when it, I mean, beer events like that weren't all that common where the brewery would actually be there. And, you know, Dave would go talk to all these people and, you know, they'd come and they'd bring their beers and talk about their beers and, really learned a lot that way about, you know, the, what, because at that point, um, you know, especially really getting into home brewing you know, being able to question the brewers about, you know, how they did something or what particular yeast or malts they were using to get a certain profile. Um, and those, but they were also just had, you know, you had a bunch of regulars who were there who were just like, Oh, I'm just here for an after work beer. And then you had the, you know, the beer nerds who were coming in because they really wanted these beers. It was just a really, really good community like that. Um actually
4: BR I have one of my first beer events I ever went to and worked was at the original Blind Tiger. It was I think my first week of work there and it was a dogfish head pumpkin event where they had the pumpkin ale on cask and we were pumping it into pumpkin shells for people to drink out of. And I remember just being like what In the holy hell is happening here. This is the craziest thing I've ever (laughs) been involved in. And why am I working at this bar right
5: now? (laughs) I don't know if I was at that one, but I know I've been at some of the barcade ones where they put the beer in a pumpkin and tap the pumpkin. It's like a pumpkin cask.
4: Yeah, this was going back to like 2003. It was definitely, it was crazy. I was like, this is a little, this is a bit much for me.
1: Courtney, that that was in your article, wasn't it? (laughs)
6: yeah that that story uh i Jen did it it devolved into a pumpkin fight at the end. I heard that people were throwing it the did. pumpkins that it took like two days to just clean like continuing people were continuing to find pumpkin around the bar.
4: It was absolutely horrifying, and like <laughs> I said, this is my first week of working at this bar. I was like, I don't know what's happening right now. <laughs> <laughs>
3: There's there's one event that by the way, I think Courtney, I might have mentioned to you when, when you interviewed me, but um the this bar hasn't come up in, in this episode, but uh Ginger Man um would regularly have uh events and I was always kind of iffy on Ginger Man because the crowd was not nearly as uh desirable as the beer. Um but uh you know it was a lot of suits coming in after after work for a happy hour before they catch trains out on Metro North. But um, there was a brewery event there, um, the brewery, um, where I walked in probably around eight o'clock It had started at five. And I saw people passed out on the couches in the front nook of Ginger Man (laughs) because they had consumed large amounts of the brewery that was beer was the brewery
1: special like 18% 20% beers yeah, yeah exactly. i never quite <laughs> figured out how they how he made those beers so strong and they were so smooth
3: but um <laughs> well they they that was the ultimate result of drinking too many <laughs> yeah. of those so yeah,
1: yeah. and i going to give up a couple of events and and BR was 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 part of so many great things that happened at so many of these beer bars I remember one year we started doing this thing called Battle of the Belgians, which was neat because we had to feature some Shelton and and other like Be United imports. Um, Along with, it was a great way to meet new American brewers like uh, Brian Strumke from Stillwater. One year he won with his his Saison. And um, I, I think that that was a good question, Courtney, because you're right. There was something about doing events at beer bars that, it wasn't just like a brewery had to do an event with their beers. You know, the, the beer bars really had brought a lot of people together, especially the reps, you know, J- Jen's Ch- chili cook-off with, with beer reps. I mean, that's something that never happened before, not just bars coming together, but the different reps working together on an event and tasting things. Um, I think that, 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 to me, that represented what a good beer bar was, is that you had like BR from Shelton and, all these different reps I and mean, you didn't need that many but you definitely had a distributor rep an importer rep and a few others and and this they, they seem like they all work together seamlessly br i'm putting it on you because uh you you are my most knowledgeable guest ever <laughs> <laughs>
5: thank you um no there was definitely a sense of camaraderie i mean a, a, especially sort of a little earlier on where the people were in for into this as because they like beer, the sales reps, not so much as like, oh, I could be selling toothpaste or I could be selling, you know, it's just a job. People were very passionate I um, made some great, great friends um, through the beer industry. And certainly, you know, there could be some competition of, you know, oh, you know, there's one line available and I need to get my beer on. Um, for me, it was a little different than some of the the, the reps who would work for uh, domestic breweries um, just because you know I was priced out of a lot of places Um, but um, no it was it was a lot of camaraderie and it's uh, the events and just it's always just fun to see all these people in one spot that was that's another nice thing of um, being able to go to these events and you're like oh you know I see one person in passing this week another person in passing that week but for these event, these type of events where uh, it wasn't just, you know, like a, a brewery event, you know, the, where you get, um, you know, especially the spring lounge events, you know, there are so many people, you know, and it's just like a fun time, you know, even without the the food. It's just great to see people, um, especially the the kegs and eggs early in the morning when you then still have to work.
4: Thanks. Uh, La Palooza was another good one always for oh. that at the Blind Tiger because yeah. it was a mix of... It was always, you know, so many different breweries. And you also knew that every person who was involved in the beer industry on any level was going to be there at some point in the day. So it was going to just be a fun, a fun event.
1: And that that still happens at Blind Tiger Michael Wool's birthday party, right?
4: It does. Yep. Hey, in Courtney. The April, um, I
1: believe. This was really cool. You know, this was a little. I think I wanted to number one celebrate your article and and talk a little bit about it. Um, a lot of the the beer bar owners or, or or workers who were quoted didn't get a chance to to come on with us today. But I uh, just wanted to say thanks again for writing that article and spending the time with all these people and and um, like hearing Dave Broderick's story through your through your words um is is really cool so anything else you want to say before we close uh, out no
6: just think i mean first of all thank you jimmy uh personally for when i got in touch with you you're one of the first people i reached out to and you jumped into action and put me in touch with a lot of people who you know don't really do the email thing or like <laughs> just were harder to pin down so you made <laughs> a lot of connections which not only helped the story but you know put me in touch with people where i could just you know, kind of geek out for a moment on the phone with them and just be like your bar means so much to me okay now professional hat is on um but yeah so just I mean thank you for that thank you to everyone in this conversation I mean I have interviewed some people here you know I appreciate hearing even more memories and beer bar chats. just it's a very special scene to me um and always will be so yeah I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about these places some more
1: Thanks. And I want to, I want to give a shout out to some of the, the early Good Brewer Seal bars, definitely Dave Broderick from Blind Tiger, Ray Dieter, rest in peace from DBA, Joe Carroll from Spite and Die. Well, those three in particular, because they, they, like many bar owners, you're really focused on running your business and 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 trying to, you know, interact with your customers and, and all those things. And the three of them from the first time we talked about it, kind of just, embrace the idea that wow we could somehow c- collaborate with with some other beer bars and um the community what w- was very special and i'm and i feel like it, it it made more complete what was going on in new york city and appreciate that you you noticed that courtney and chris man with your brew york you were the chronicler of the good beer seal and of our beer bars and and jen you know stalwart veteran who who is Probably more connected to all these reps and than anyone, <laughs> um, and you always stand out, and br too. So um, you've been on the show more than anyone else, and I still love having you on. So thank you. It's kind of a rambling show, but a lot of good things were said, and it's also nice. Like the whole point of Beer Sessions Radio, it's it's great to have you guys talking, and um, want to give a shout out to Armin Spengen, our engineer, who's going to clean this up. I am on a laptop today. I've been spoiled by being in the studio at Roberta's Pizza. Uh, t- today we're remote. We're all in different, at least different parts of the city. And I um, just want to say thank you guys again. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host on Beer Sessions Radio. Thanks to Chris, Jen, BR, and Courtney for joining me here. We'll catch you next time on Heritage Radio Network. Thanks so much, guys.
5: Thanks. Thanks, Jimmy.
1: Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you.